Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Sorry, of course, I have to take care of the dogs and tell them to settle down. I have to bribe them with a treat. So hopefully they can leave us alone for a few hours while we get to business. <laughs> okay. You ready? All right, so Ramadan Mubarak. I cannot believe we've made it to the last of the month, but I'm so happy to be here to share, if you're in California, obviously the last few hours of the month with you. Um, alhamdulillah, uh, the last Q&A was wonderful. We had quite a, um, an interesting, um, I guess, sharing of the, the nail polish fatwa. And so <laughs> thank you to my friends out there who shared it around. I think it just piqued some interest and it was a good way for people to kind of see, you know, how we deal with even a, a very mundane issue, but a mundane issue that really has meant a lot of suffering for a lot of women. And so I'm happy that we touched upon it. And I don't know if the professor has more he wants to say about it because I shared with him some of the comments too and um, some of the objections. But you know, I mean, it says everyone expects that you're going to have a, a you know a different kinds of reactions, and that's fine. Um, so. But it's really, um, it's amazing that um, so much has happened, right? In 30 days, it's gone by in like a blink of an eye. But if you think to the beginning of like, you know, I know like, they, uh, I know the Syrian refugee or the Syrian orphanage, you know, people that we often talk about, you know, one of the, one of our dear friends who takes care of um, the orphans, he had a baby in Syria, you know, and then we know of people, I mean, obviously a lot of people lost loved ones. And, you know, um, and last night we actually had a very special occasion where we um, took someone's shahada from another country. So, you know, there's so many beautiful blessings um, and miracles and things that happen during, you know, this, this wonderful month. And so, um, you know, alhamdulillah. Um, and so I, I pray that everyone had a good month. And um, I, I really enjoyed sharing, you know, the chapters of the Search for Beauty for people who like um, joined along that journey with me. It was really surprising for me and very like enriching. And I was really happy to hear from a lot of people that they also benefited. So I hope that um, that, that book deserves, um, you know, a, a new life, a new audience. Um, it's been such a prescient book. It's, there's so much in there that's, you know, really appropriate for our time. And it's easy to read and very engaging. So I, I hope that, um, you know, even if you've never read the book that you want to kind of, you know, dip into it a little bit, then, you know, follow even just the chapters that I shared, because they were a beautiful, like divine sampling of things that are really important for us to think about. And, um, you know, and talk about and, and take action over in our, in our time. So um, alhamdulillah, thank you to everyone who shared that journey with me and, um, and let me know if you did, because I always love to know, um, you know, how people reacted. So I, we got so many questions, look at these papers. And so it's a little bit hard, um, you know, and they, they're like last time, you know, we had questions of all different, um, you know, on different topics, different levels of understanding. Um, and last time, actually, um, you know, I started out the Q&A not really knowing, like, oh my gosh, which question should we pick? But I found that as we got into the discussion, um, it kind of became clear. And as you saw, it turned out to be a really wonderful session. So I'm praying for that kind of guidance again this time. And hopefully we'll just get through as many as we can. And inshallah, it'll be, it'll be good. So uh, I'll be the, like, the DJ of, Q of questions or something, <laughs> the curator, the DJ, whatever. So, but in honor of our friend um, and now our, bro our brother, who um, 
converted last night, I actually thought um, I wanted to start the Q&A off with um, his question because it's something that um, I think really um, doesn't just touch upon converts, but just you know Muslims in general, especially young people, and it's about tattoos. So um, the question is, as a new Muslim, I have to admit that from before I was a Muslim, I have several visible tattoos on my arms and even one on my hand, and on top of that, also stretched earring holes. And I'd like to ask two questions. What should or could I do about it now? What is your idea about this? And do I need now to always feel ashamed and cover myself? And um, how can this be a problem for my life and integration for my Muslim identity from now on, for example, in Muslim communities? And maybe it's good to also touch upon the issue of tattoos in general for young people because it's such a trend these days. So we'll start with that. before dealing with this question I just want to make two two brief comments um First, um, I want to thank all of those who have donated um, since my um, uh, since my last appeal about donations. Um, there are quite a few people who I trust gave what they can, and it, it's uh, it um, you know may Allah bless you and reward you um, for all you give I I still you know I still um, wait for that for that time when something like the Usuli Institute can be properly um, supported uh, but I, but at the same time, I, I am eminently grateful for everyone who gave to support the Osuli Institute. Um, it's uh, it's um, your money that will define how much we can do and what reach we can have. You know, I. I was reading something um, a couple of days ago that there are three privately funded Arab Christian channels. Um, one of them, uh, which I've actually watched on and off, called Al Haya. These Christian channels, all here in the U.S privately funded, all they do, these are not the Christian channels that teach Christianity in Arabic. There, there are many of these. Um, and you can find them if you have a satellite station that has Arabic stations, you can find these channels. 
the channels like Al Haya and Al Tariq and so on, all they do 24 hours a day, seven days a week is attack Islam. These are channels that Christians have created, Arabic speaking channels, that all they do literally is anti Muslim evangelism. Uh, they try to convert Muslims to Christianity, and in the course of that, they, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they uh, malign the Prophet, they slander the Prophet, they attack the Quran, they, uh, you know, they have a, keep get, bringing in guests of uh, Muslims who say that they're atheists, Muslims who say that. Uh, their converts to Christianity, um, um, a, a whole slew of guests of people that claim that they're specialists in Islam, and all they do is trash Islam. And the amazing thing is that all these channels are privately funded in the United States. They're funded by Arab Christians. And according to the thing that I've read, they have about 10,000 donors, uh, each of these channels, and each of these donors basically pay something around $100 a year. And, oh, sorry, $100 a month. And, and with that money, they're able to hire a whole staff, and, and it, it, it blows my mind that there are people that can create media outlets to malign the religion of the other. I mean, can you imagine Muslims putting together a channel that, that uh, all it does is attack Christianity 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Uh, I don't think Muslims even have it in their heart to do it. I mean, m Muslims would, would think of it as un-Islamic. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it really is a profound... So we're not even talking about Zionism and the, the zeal of... of um, uh, uh, we're talking about Arabs and Christian Arabs, but they're, they have such a passionate hate of Islam that they're, so many of them are willing to give $100 a month to, to just malign Islam. It's amazing that, you know, I, I, I keep, it's been so many years and I've, I've been um, just begging for the establishment of a permanent outlet to respond to Islamophobia. Is there something? I'm sorry, there's... Uh, So anyway, our, our if we had a donor base of um, even a thousand people that contributed regularly something like a hundred dollars a month or something like that, I think it would be enable the Usuli Institute to uh, be a serious force. Um, 
the second thing I want to, um, I'm, I'm rather was amazed that the issue of nail polish um, got all this attention. Um, and, I, and I was amazed that of some of the things that I've seen um, where people started talking about how they have friends who, uh, because of the issue of nail polish, stop praying altogether. Uh, they have friends that, because of the issue of nail polish, they stop going to the mosque because every time they would go to the mosque, they would feel uh, very defensive and uncomfortable. And it really blows my mind as a complete loss of priorities. Uh, the issue of the dhufr, the dhufr, and whether the dhufr is included in the command to wash the hand, um, and how included. I mean, so, you know, when we do, we, do, we don't, for instance, clean under the nails. Although a lot of fuqaha in, in the tradition believe that you should, uh, should include cleaning under the nails. But I tell you, because it would be inconvenient for men, it was not made a, an issue in our modern age. It seems like we, we love to flagellate women uh, to, to make issues, to, to raise issues that make the lives of women difficult rather than easier. And that is completely inconsistent with Taisir and completely inconsistent with the methodology of Rahmah as, as a primary objective of Sharia that if at all possible, you remove hardship, you alleviate hardship, you don't focus on it and go out of your way to achieve it. To me, to me, it's a it's a minutia. It doesn't deserve all that attention. Um, you 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 do do you wash according to what the the base the essential of what, you know. There are all these that you if you want it to be um, a mutanatta, then you can get into all these discussions about when you wash your ears, where exactly the water should reach. Whether it should reach behind the ear, inside the ear, when you wash your nose, do you have to do istin shak where you know you know you make sure the water goes into the nose and then you blow it out and then, but all of that is tanatta, and you know wudu was used as a pedagogical pedagogical training device for jurists to deal with difficult juristic. Uh, the exercise of juristic distinction and argumentation. And that's why the chapters in Wudu and Kutub al-Fiqh are, are so big. It's because it was, a, it was a training field for preparing jurists. When you have Muslims today that read these Fiqh discussions and they don't know how to situate them, 
that they, they, uh, and they're not trained in, in fiqh generally, and they're not trained in legal thinking, they lose perspective completely. But what is amazing to me is that a lot of the discussions that could make the lives of men very difficult are ignored. And we all jump on an issue that makes the lives of women difficult. I am not a woman, so I don't know what it means to wear nail polish. But when I see that it matters so much for women, it is my Islamic obligation to accommodate, to, to, to see whether the text would allow for a resolution which would accommodate the concerns of al-abd, the, uh, the, the concerns of uh, the follower of Sharia. If you make the arguments of Sharia unreasonable, you alienate from God's religion. And that is a huge sin that I don't understand how so many scholars take so lightly. The idea that I would issue, that I would support some type of position that would eventually lead teenage, teenage girls to stop praying or to dislike the mosque and find it a hostile space, I don't know how you can take that on your conscience. That type of responsibility should keep you awake at night. Um, okay, because yeah, I, I was really surprised with the whole with the response to the nail polish thing. I mean, uh, subhanallah. Um, tattoos. You know, there is a, a there is a long discussion about the difference between what they call a washm. Uh, washm is um, sort of the way that tribal societies would would um, mark the skin, um, if especially like if you've seen Bedouin societies, you'll find that. They'll sometimes have blue markings near the eyes um, or the lips. Um, and the, the modern tattooing. My own position is that all of that falls under the تغيير خلق الله. And I, I think تغيير خلق الله at a minimum is a makruh. Uh, so tattooing, uh, whether, in, in, in whether the old traditional style which you find among tribal societies or the modern style that, um, you know, that people do these days, uh, including the writing of names on your bodies, including writing of uh, religious um, things like Bismillah or Allah or on, on the skin, uh, I th think it's all encompassed under the Quranic 
condemnation of uh, of those who change God's khalq, um, uh, and also under uh, a lot of the, the sunnah of the Prophet um, You know, can I say it's a it's a absolute haram? Personally, I would need more evidence for that, and I know that there's enough fine distinctions about what type of tattoo and all of that. But at a minimum, it's a serious makruh, and 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 if I was in your place, I would avoid it because makruh doesn't mean that it's okay to do it. A makruh means that it could very well be haram. It's just that you might not find out how serious of a sin it is until the final day. Uh, I would avoid it, um, avoid all of it. Now, uh, you know, there, there are some people in the past who've asked, well, how about tattooing uh, for military purposes or for purposes? And here, that's different when you're talking about a tattooing uh, for, you know, you belong to a military squad or you, um, you know, the type of tattooing that was done in the pre-modern age, sometimes to make sure that you recognize your soldiers, especially back then they didn't have name tags. And um, when people would lose their lives, you wanted to make sure you recognize the body. And the only way you would, sometimes you would recognize a body because bodies got so deformed in war was by the the tattoo that you left on the body. Uh, obviously, that that has a very different purpose. And you know, inshallah, none of us would be in a situation like this uh, where they need to recognize your body by your tattoos. Uh, what to do about it if you have it? There are some fuqaha that have recommended going and doing these procedures uh, for tattoo removals. Um, I, a while ago, um, that was a while ago, had looked into that, and there are a couple of things. Uh, th these procedures themselves could end up in a worse deformity than the tattoo, and they're expensive. So I would not do them unless your tattoo is clearly haram. So, you know, someone who has a tattoo of a naked um, woman on their arm, uh, or someone who has a tattoo of a cross, or someone who has an obscenity written on their body. And then in that situation, uh, go, looking into the pro some process by which you can remove the, the, the offending symbol or offending language. Other than that, um, it, you know, it's part of your past and you've asked Allah for forgiveness and repentance and uh, khalas, uh, you... you you know, there is no shame. You should, all of us, all of us 
make mistakes and all of us commit sins and all of us have our failures and Allah is most forgiving and most merciful and the, Allah doesn't want us to carry shame with us after repentance. You repent and you ask Allah for forgiveness and you don't do it again and you move on. And if people don't understand that, that's their problem. It's not your problem. Um, is that good? Mm -hmm. Is that clear? Yes. Okay, so let's, um, since we're at Aid, um, let's just do a few shorter questions that have to do with um, some of the rituals. Hopefully these can be things you can answer um, without too much time. Um, first of all, people um, are asking about the permissibility of joining Aid prayer remotely, if you could talk about that. And uh, some people have requested or asked if you would be willing to do an Aid prayer also. But anyway, we talked about that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to do a prayer. Um, I don't know. I mean, I might regret it uh, that I didn't. But uh, the, the, the 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 central purpose of Aid is the to feel. Uh, the community, for the community to come together and celebrate collectively the end of a special, very special month, the month of Ramadan. And for the community in coming together, there would be a, a public performance of a public collective uh, acknowledgement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a, a where where you strengthen the bonds of community, and in a in a collective, if you will, um, commitment and vow um, to turn towards Allah, one and two, to be attentive to the needs of the un most unfortunate in the community and attentive to the needs of the needy in the community and attentive to the needs of the orphans and attentive to the needs of uh, back then those who were slaves um, and the disempowered. The, the whole purpose of the Eid gathering was like renewing a collective communal vow. Um, I don't know if if a prayer that I would lead would achieve these objectives. Uh, uh, the, the, that something core to the to the the, the purpose behind Eid is very different than the purpose behind Juma. In light of the the um, epidemic and the closing of. Uh, Masajid and so on. Normally, I would have a lot of hesitation about uh, doing um, Eid prayers virtually. Uh, normally, I would have a lot of hesitations because of the specific purposes that Eid prayer plays. 
and eight prayers in particular, all the different mosques are supposed to come together and play, and, and it tries to force different mosques within a town, a city, a village to transcend their, their borders and their boundaries and all come together collectively as a single community. Uh, normally I would have serious reservations, but I think in light of the epidemic, um, of, uh, of the pandemic, Joining virtually in any eight prayer that will be held, I think, is okay. Um, just keep in mind the the purposes of eight. My one of my biggest concerns, and I don't have a response, uh, is that a lot of the people that have popped up giving virtual khutbahs and leading eight prayers are not qualified. They don't know anything. They're, they're hobbyists. They're, they're people that basically are, are playing the role of, a, of an imam or a sheikh or whatever for entirely egotistical purposes. Um, in, in my school of thought, and you don't have to follow that, but I don't pray behind someone who I don't believe is qualified to be an imam. Uh, most Sunnis in today's world don't follow that school of thought, and that's fine. That's a different matter. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, the next question has to do with medication and inhalers. So um, I'll read this question, but maybe you can answer it also more broadly rather than just about the inhaler. I do not have asthma, but I do suffer from allergies and occasionally have trouble breathing. Today I was struggling to breathe and I used my inhaler. I know that most people say that using one's inhaler breaks one's fast, and I usually abide by that. But when I was having trouble breathing, that just seemed so unreasonable. Using my inhaler will not quench my thirst nor satisfy my hunger. And God says in his holy book that he desires ease for us and not hardship. But now I've become worried that I invalidated my fast because many Islamic websites say that I did. I was curious what your thoughts were on, on this at the Asuli Institute because I've long respected your positions on a variety of issues. Um, if I did invalidate my fast, how might I make it up? And maybe you could also say that regarding like allergy pills and, you know, other medications, too? No, listen, uh, inhalers is, uh, <coughs> is something that was invented <coughs> considerably, um, a, 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 a considerable time after, long after much of the jurisprudence on <coughs> fasting was written. Um, it, Classical jurists would discuss the closest things that we had to the, the um, precedent of inhalers, uh, where uh, in the old days, uh, people who would have asthma would boil, they, they would liquefy uh, various plants, and then they would boil these plants, and people who would have asthma would breathe in the um what do you call the where did you go the the, the smoke not a smoke the the amar the um, uh, what do you call the um when you when you boil 
Oh, the steam. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rami. Rami bailed me out. Yeah, you would smoke the steam. Um, and the, the, uh, the majority of classical jurors said that the steam treatments do not break your fast. So when inhalers were invented, some jurists, some uh, scholars, and now we're talking about the modern age, said no, inhalers are not like steam treatments. Inhalers are more like the intake of liquid. And as such, they break your fast. Other scholars said no, inhalers are really more like steam treatments for asthma, for uh, various breathing um, ailments, and as such, they do not break your fast. My, uh, uh, um, the, when Dar al-Fatwa al-Masriya, when Dar al-Ifta of Egypt was a real Dar fatwa ever since Sisi came to power, never take anything from Dar al-Ifta al-Masriya, it became a joke. But in the pre-CC years, when it was an actual real institution, uh, there was a fatwa by Dar al-Ifta that said that inhalers do not break a fast. Um, the opinion that I follow, contrary to, uh, you know, I don't know why Muslims in the West, uh, it's either they're completely um, loose, <laughs> Either they're completely promiscuous and, you know, they, they do everything haram and believe that you can be a Muslim and do everything haram, they forbid nothing, or they forbid everything. And they're, they're just, uh, the middle of the road is the best. And my own position is inhalers do not uh, invalidate your fast. What we do have, what it's a different, category when you have to take um, medicines such as pills or liquid that goes into, and the issue is not nourishment. I mean, I, that would take a lot of time. The issue is whether uh, there is an intake that actually goes down to, you swallow and goes into your stomach. Um, and of course, if you take a pill, it does go down to your stomach. Um, so pills are different than inhalers. Inhalers don't break a fast. Pills do break your fast. And if you break your fast, you're one of two categories. You're either in the category of those who can make it up. So in other words, you just make it up before the next Ramadan. Um, or you are you're unable to make it up because you are um, chronically ill. You, you're always going to have to take that medicine, and so you, there will never be a period where you are going to be able to complete the fast. And in that case, you pay a, a kafara. You 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 pay a certain amount of money, um, which comes to about what do you, do you remember the the amount it's about 20 20 dollars a day about right yeah i think that's what we use yeah it comes to about 20 dollars a day so uh, for for the entire ramadan uh, 
you know, it's about $600 or so, um, or, or $20 a day. I, I, my suggestion is when it comes to the kafara, if you're unable to make up your fasting days because you're chronically ill, not because you don't feel like it, but um, if you're physically able to do it, then you, you should make up the day. Uh, does it ma matter, make a difference when you make it up? No, it doesn't, as long as you make it up before the following Ramadan. But my own advice when it comes to the kafara is give as much as you can afford. Uh, the minimum is $20, $20 a day, but you want Allah's blessings, and you want Allah's forgiveness, and you want Allah's barakah, and... and to to f fill your life, and in order to do that, um, give as much as you can afford uh, in expatriation, and you know uh, uh, what is especially blessed with this type of money, the kafara money, is to give to orphans. Orphans are our collective responsibility, and we have to take care of them. Um, just as simple as that. Can you answer the same question for pregnant women? So the question is, what are the rulings for pregnant women's fasting? Does one have to pay fidya and complete the fast later? I'm getting many opinions. Please help. Um, okay. A pregnant woman Breastfeeding women, too, kind of. Well, it, it all pregnant women and breastfeeding women all hinges on um, medical ability. It, there is a license for women who are pregnant or women who are breastfeeding, there is permission for them not to fast if fasting is going to be cause hardship if fasting is going to cause damage or uh, cause uh, harm uh, to them or to their child. Um, a lot of pregnant women will ask a Muslim doctor who handles pregnancies um, and, uh, and ask, you know, do you think it's okay for me to fast? I've known, um, you know, like Dr. Hassan Hathout was a, uh, Rahimahullah was um, the the closest person that I that I knew that um, would advise pregnant women on that. And I remember in, in many situations, in many occasions, he would tell pregnant women not to fast. Uh, I think that even as, even without asking the doctor, um, you know, I mean, you you can look within and see if you can handle fasting um, or not. The most important thing is that you do not cause, there's a grave responsibility. It's a serious responsibility if you fast and then you harm yourself or you harm your child because Allah gave you a license. I'm not one of those people who believes that if you don't, take a license, if you don't act upon a license, and that's haram, that, that, um, that's not my school of thought. Um, my, my school of thought is a license basically gives you discernment. It, it, it gives you the power to discern and decide. Um, and 
women differ greatly. You know, I, I've known women who who are on their ninth months and you know it didn't phase them. They're walking everywhere. They're very active, very uh, very healthy, very strong. Uh, and I've known others where, where literally, you know, uh, when they're they're pregnant, the entire period they're malnourished. They they they're in a very weak situation. Okay, so so now that you, if you haven't fasted, either all of Ramadan or partial, some days of Ramadan, the for a pregnant woman or for a nursing woman. You have a choice. You either can make up the days that you did not fast. You can either make them up or you can pay the kafara uh, for the for the the month. The, you know, if you missed a few days, don't be lazy and make them up. Just make up these days. You know, we're not talking about the entire... If you miss the entire month, and it will be because you... you there was a license for you not to, to, to fast and to pay the kafara instead, then uh, then do that if you're unable to fast the months. <clears throat> so a couple of questions about prayer. Um, the first one is, um, Dr. Bofuddle always says that Salah starts with wudu. Does this mean that you have to do wudu every time you perform salat? No, um, you don't have to. Although it is mustahab, it is something recommended um, to recommit yourself in a state of purity. Um, but what, uh, to recommit yourself in a state of purity and to try to enter the mindset of Salah uh, when you refresh your wudu. Um, so the minute you say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, uh, it is very useful to, to imagine the water. As you wash your hands, you rinse your mouth, uh, you... Uh, uh, clean your nose and, and your face and so on, it is very useful to imagine the water washing away sins. Uh, not a washing away dirt, because that's not the point of, of wudu, but washing away sins. And then to be in a solemn state and a committed state when you enter prayer. That is almost the hub. But what I mean, uh, what you're talking about, I mean, sorry, other than the mustahab, is uh, that when that the act of wudu is like its own mini prayer, and that's what I mean. That when you do wudu, you're really performing a ritual. Uh, it's not that you're cleaning your body. Uh, you know, it, it's a ritualistic act that symbolizes your desire for purity. And you do it with a with that 
in mind whether you pray immediately or you or that you use that will do for two prayers or whatnot. Um, keep in mind that you're rewarded for for each wudu. In other words, you know, the more wudu you're able to do, uh, you're rewarded for that. So, you know, because you find um, today um, shiuch from Egypt, because the government tells them that we need to conserve on water and there is a water shortage, so they start talking about how you shouldn't waste water and wudu and so and and of course you you shouldn't you know you shouldn't turn on the faucet and leave it uh, you shouldn't splurge and needlessly waste water but you know renewing your wudu five times a day is not a waste of water it's a great blessing but you don't have to do it you know you you can keep you can perform several salahs with a single wudu if you, if you haven't negated it. Okay, thank you. Can we combine Dhuhr and Asr prayers even when not traveling and just at home? The Prophet ﷺ, we have sufficient evidence now. Well, I mean, we've always had. The, the, there are various reports that the Prophet ﷺ combined Dhuhr and Asr, uh, Maghrib and Asha for a reason and no reason. Um, of you know, there, there are all these long, complicated debates. Um, my position on this is that if there is a reason so, for instance, you're going to, if you don't combine, you're going to miss prayer. Uh, I would rather combine than miss prayer. Uh, you know, I make it a point to to try, go out of my way not to miss prayer, and if that means combining, then I combine. Uh, or if you, uh, you need to combine... Um, uh, I'm not, you know, but my my own position is uh, combined for a cause, don't make it a habit. There, there is a great blessing, there is a great blessing to, in having to interrupt your day five times a day to turn to Allah because it really doesn't leave you a chunk of time without reminding yourself of Allah's presence and Allah's authority and Allah's rights um, in the modern age you know we, we get work demands we get school demands we get classes that we have to go to etc etc um, and it's, it's, it's not always possible to uh, so you know, so then we're forced to combine into three prayers a day. For a cause, it's okay. For that's my opinion. So just don't make it a habit where you're always combining 
and where you end up just doing three. And the other thing I've noticed among a lot of young Muslims as well is that Muslim, Muslims who've decided to always combine, I notice that they, they start rushing through, because they know they have to pray Zohar and Asr together, then they rush through prayer. They pray very fast, and it's sort of like, just get it out of the way, rather than having Allah present in your life five times a day. Uh, for our Shia sisters and brethren, they have a very different fiqhi position in that, that they, they argue, and there are reasonable grounds for their position. It's not. Uh, the, the argument is that when Asr becomes obligatory at the moment that Zohar prayer ends, and so the logic of their combining has different jurisprudential reasons than when Sunnis combine. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going. There are there are very rational and reasonable grounds for the Shia position. Um, although I think the Sunni position is correct on this, um, so we try to pray five times a day as much as possible, and we. And my advice is only combine for a cause or for a purpose. So in other words, try as much as possible not to make it a regular practice. You, you need Allah to interrupt your day as many times as possible, at minimum, five times a day. Um, otherwise, the, the, your life will become arid and meaningless, arid, dry. Okay, so we're going to move to um, a topic that concerns a lot of women. I got several questions about this, um, and it has to do with um, women having their period in menses. So I'm going to read you the, uh, several questions that relate. Um, the first one is, um, my 14-year-old daughter asked me recently, why is it that women aren't allowed to pray or fast during their periods, and if this is true, what differentiates it from the women-hating cultures that isolate and ostracize women during menses and lokia? Specifically, if, if Allah doesn't think it's unclean, then why is praying or fasting not an option? Um, to continue on that, um, this is from a different person. What is the legal basis for women having to stop the actual ritual act of prayer and fasting during their menses? I'm trying to figure out if it's something that was made up by male theologians or crept in from other traditions, for example, the Jewish tradition, or if it's a byproduct of incorrect medical thought um, or based on some precedent and the prophet um, discussed it as a general rule and not a specific rule for a specific, for a specific person. For the medical aspect, I'm a physician and from Hippocrates to about the 19th century, medical doctors considered blood to be impure, hence cupping and bleeding were medical techniques used for millennia to treat disease. We obviously don't do that now to cure or treat infection. We know now that blood is sterile, usually, and not impure. And we know that infection is from bacteria and viruses. So can a woman pray and fast when menstruating? And then along those lines, can women read Quran while menstruating? And I guess touch the Quran.
Um, okay. Uh, let's, let's take a two-minute break. Just two minutes. Okay. So very quickly, I actually just want to say um, thank you again for all of the donations. It's actually very exciting. The Launch Good um, campaign uh, that we're running will run through the end of May. But at, at the last check, I think we... Um, we're at over $14,000. So that's very exciting because we actually, when we started out, we really um, had set the first limit at, I think, just over $3,000. And so we've been able to up it several times. And um, I think that the idea of, um, you know, trying to have our community support what we're doing with a monthly donation is really, really important. Um, we'll talk about this more at another time, but this is one of these things that I'll just the professor walked away, so maybe I can just <laughs> say this. Um, he told me a couple of nights ago that he actually um, discovered something about the Quran that he had been wondering about for a very long time and had been researching, I mean, his whole life, right? I don't know if I should reveal what it is, but it is so mind-blowing and so exciting that he... Um, we talked about the possibility of doing like a series of halakas um, where he could share what he found um, literally about every chapter of the Quran. So he would do a halakha about every single chapter of the Quran that's not a tafsir, but about you know his findings. And the thing that strikes me the most is that I wish that he could spend all of his time on this because these are things that have not been found before in our tradition. And God forbid that he would leave this earth without being able to, you know, leave this legacy behind and properly share it with people or, you know, talk about it so at least we could transcribe it, publish it, and, and have it available for future generations. So to me, if there is any way that we could raise money to buy out his time so he doesn't have to go teach at the university and just spend it on this, this is invaluable for us as, as Muslims. And so I, you know, I, I throw this out there because anyone who is interested um, in, you know, helping me make this happen, whether it's through, a, you know, a fundraising drive, so we get enough people to donate on a monthly basis that we could buy his time for a year, so he could just focus on this. I think that this would be incredible, and we will talk about it more because I know the professor wants to share it, and it's mind blowing. Um, and so, and even like maybe give a halakha, we talked about the possibility of him giving one halakha just to let people know what he's talking about. Um, and then maybe from there build a campaign. But so, you know, we just, at this point there, there's so much that we can learn through this about the Quran that I think has not been discovered before. So get in contact with me if you're interested, because I think this is really, Exciting and important. So, no, you talk. You, yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you what I said. I, I see you excited. So <laughs> okay, I, I see her yeah. excited. So by now it's like I know Grace. And what are you I, saying? Yeah, and I know if she's excited, then uh, she's been like, she's been all over me about the 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 thing. I yeah, I didn't say exactly what it was. I just said that you told me the other night. Because I, I didn't know if you wanted me to, like, reveal. But I just said that you told me that you discovered something that, you know, you've been working on or thinking about. And it's so exciting and that you want to give... Well, what, what, what it is is that I, um, 
I've had a, a, a suspicion that grew into a theory that, uh, a suspicion that was at first a hypothesis and now has grown into a theory. Um, and that is, I've used the, the, the Fatha um, as a key, as a muftah, uh, to try to unlock each surah of the Quran. And I found amazing parallels. And the essence of it is that I think, I've always asked myself, why is a surah a surah? I mean, why are the ayat organized in chapters? We often take Quranic verses outside the context of the surah that they were revealed in, and we deal with the surah without semantic unity. But in fact, each surah in the Quran, each chapter, has a thematic unity, has a main message that it conveys about something uh, of aqidat al-Muslim. So that when the Quran describes itself as huda wa nur, as, as, as light and guidance, as a full guidance, as a complete guidance, it is absolutely true but you have to understand what, what what each surah in the Quran is doing as a thematic cause so <coughs> Surah Al-Baqarah has a thematic unity a, a total complete lesson that from beginning until end it is conveying and Surah Al-Nisa and Surah Al-Umran and Surah Al-Ankabut you know it, it, <coughs> And the early Muslims, the earliest generations of Muslims, I think when they chose the names of the Sur, they understood innately, intuitively, something about the thematic unity of each surah, that the naming of the surah was not happenstance. Um, when there, even when there are disagreements about the name of the surah, so when when we had several different reports about different names given to a certain surah, there is a reason for that, because th that was a disagreement about the thematic meaning of that particular surah. But um, in order to do that. I, I have I was I sort of didn't talk to Grace about it because I knew that she she would go crazy and and give me a headache uh, until I went I've I've now completed about um, seventy soar uh, where I I note down after studying the surah from beginning to end the thematic unity and the main theme of that surah. And what it what is, is it is doing in building the Muslim moral character, um, using the Fatha as a roadmap for understanding the each surah, and it's worked 
in a way that I, uh, subhanallah, I'm, I'm very surprised and I'm very humbled and I'm, it's very exciting. But I was telling Grace that, you know, I could try to spend the next 10 years writing a book about that. Um, but it would be, the way that I would end up writing it would be a very academic book and it would get very limited reading. Uh, or I can give a class about every surah, but then you, you would need, you know, 60 halakhas. Each halakha would be at least a couple, at least a couple of hours about each surah. But it's, I, I believe, Allahu so, A'lam, you know, I believe that it's very valuable knowledge and it's a very uh, at a minimum uh, it's something that I would want to put out there and let people to consider and study um, can you give the example about the surah about Maryam uh, I, 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 I know that if I if I open up Okay, then, no. but but I'll just it, it tell you there is a very like Surat Maryam has a very strong thematic message to women it, it's it's from beginning to end it is conveying a moral lesson Surat Al-Ankabut from beginning to end it's conveying a, a total moral lesson uh, Surat Al-Nahl uh, and it's remarkable because the Quran will sort of like literally like the, the waves in an ocean. It takes you up and down and up and down and up and down, but it delivers you to the shore. And each surah is like navigating its own little ocean with its own little experience. So I was, we were talking about, well, you know, how, how I can do that. And, and, the, and I don't, I'm not sure I live long enough to go through all the soar unless I am able to either give, an, other than the tafsir that I do, other than the usul halqa, to give a class every week or give several classes every week. Um, it's a very big commitment because you're talking about each class being a couple of hours. But if I am teaching four classes at, at the law school, <clears throat> that's very difficult to do. It's impossible. Because uh, of my health limitations, I can't teach two courses a semester at the law school and do the administrative work that I have to do, uh, the committee work, um, take care of and and. Um, so teaching and this obligation are in, in serious tension. And I and I'm, was just telling Grace, I, I will feel really sad if I leave this world and I haven't had an opportunity to communicate what I believe are valuable findings about why each surah is organized the way it is. You know, why does the Baqarah end with the ayat that it ends in? Why is Surah Al-Kursi or Ayat Al-Kursi uh, found 
in the surah that is found in? Why is it in Al-Baqarah and not any other surah? Why is Why does Surah Al-Ankabut talk about Al-Ankabut, about spiders, there and not any other surah? I mean, these are, if Muslims want to really understand the Quran, they have to understand when the Quran talks about bees. Could, could you have taken the, what the Quran says about bees and put it in any other surah and it would make sense? And my answer is no, it wouldn't. It, 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 it talks about bees in Surah Al-Nahl because of the thematic structure of that surah. Um, Subhanallah, I mean, it, it's, very, it's, it's, very, it, it's very exciting. I feel like I've, I've, the Quran is a book. Every time I've thought I've reached the level of intimacy with this book, um, uh, I, I discovered that even you, you could go to greater dimensions and greater depths. The only thing I was telling Grace is that I haven't found in, in, in what I'm talking about is not in Kutub al-Tafsir. Uh, there's no tafsir that you can find this material in. And for whatever it's worth, it's, it's a contribution that Allah has aided me. I mean, now it's been many, many years that I've been working on this. But I've been working on it quietly because at initial, initially it was just a suspicion and then it became a hypothesis. <laughs> that I wasn't sure I could support. Uh, but now I'm, I'm uh, confident. It, it, it's so I mentioned to people that if there was a way, if people are interested in helping me with raising money to buy out your time for a year so you can focus on this, that they should contact me. Sorry, you know, like Doogie, our German Shepherd, is so excited about this that he just cannot contain himself. So I have to go tell him to be quiet, but it's very exciting. So even he feels the blessings. Okay. So okay. Inshallah, inshallah, if we can find a way to do this, I mean, you know, we can create a lot of halakha. I'm sure anyone involved in this will get incredible blessings just to be part of it. So for that alone, I hope people. You know, or you know, for, if we're just fantasizing. Um, if the Usuli Institute was, you know, had a, a real endowment, um, I would be willing to take a serious uh, uh, paycheck cut and retire early, so I can, so I can um, dedicate my the, my last time, my my you know whatever days, months, years, whatever. Uh, um, uh, on on this earth, to what I believe really matters, and that's not the technical law that I teach at law school, um, but Islamic knowledge, and um, because we we we've reached an age where it just uh, reasonable Islam has become. Such, <laughs> yeah, such a pressing need. Mm -hmm. Reasonable Islam. Um, Beautiful Islam. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, you, uh, do you, um, do you need the questions uh, again? No, about menstrual uh, okay. periods and.
Okay, first, keep in mind there are a couple of things. The, the issue with blood and purity, it doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with cleanliness or lack of cleanliness or healthiness or lack of healthiness. So, for instance, uh, semen is considered impure. Um, why is semen impure? Probably, I mean, again, I'm not a medical specialist, but I I think that modern medicine, uh, as well as old jurisprudence, it, you know, it's not that it was believed that semen is a source of infection or source of disease. Um, same thing with blood. Blood, whether menstrual blood or blood that flows from an injury, man or woman, um, is considered impure. So you you the, you can't pray if you have a wound that's bleeding. Uh, you know we're not talking about soldiers in battle. They, they have a different category because there's a special rule for them. So just keep in mind that when when we talk about tahara, uh, whether something is tahir or not, we're not talking about whether it carry it is infected or whether it is diseased or not. Um, we're talking in many ways about what laws of ibadah, laws of uh, worshipping that um, invoke rules that are not always susceptible to reason. You know, so why do we do rukuah? Why do we do sujood? Why is door uh, prayer for rakahs? Why are there five prayers, not ten? Why are why is Isha, why is maghrib prayer three and Isha prayer four? You know, all of these you, reason is not uh, what's going to uh, manage to validate or support or defend or justify them. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is when the, Quran, the, the, when the Quran refers to menstrual bleeding as aza, uh, it calls it aza. Aza means harm. But while so many male uh, interpreters read this to mean that women are a source of harm, if you look at the various reports of Asbab uh, al-Tanzil, the, the, the uh, occasions for revelation, it wasn't talking about the blood being a source of harm for men, it was talking about the a harm. Now, there are many occasions of revelations that make us uh, consider that, uh, well, one of the reports that uh, is that women complained about being approached during their period and that they didn't want to... For a lot of women during their period, they, they 
and it's uncomfortable. Um, and the and so when it's when it it says fatazilun nisa and that bleeding is other, it could very well be read as talking about the other the other being two women. Um, in other words, that it's a source of harm for women, so don't don't approach them during their menstrual period. Anyway, whether I mean the 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 command is not to have intercourse during the menstrual period. Um, not it does not mean refrain from sexual activity. It means don't have intercourse for whatever reason. Allah didn't want didn't want the actual act of penetration during and the mixing of semen with blood. Um, now, the issue of prayer and all of that. It is true that at the time that Islam is revealed in the Israelite tradition and in the tradition, the Mediterranean tradition generally, not just the Israelite, but Mediterranean tradition in, in general, um, the period of bleeding for women is, the, the woman is considered impure and untouchable. And Mediterranean cultures, as well as, by the way, Asian cultures, went to extreme to great extremities um, where they you know they, they would go out of their way to to consider a woman in a, in a defiled state or an impure state or a dirty state uh, what we know is that what Islam did is that it intervened into that uh, in, in, into these dynamics and greatly moderated it where you know, a woman is is not in a state in a defiled state so you know uh, uh, you don't stop dealing with women, women you don't stop interacting with women you don't stop speaking with women you don't stop sleeping with women etc etc um about the 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 main issue with, with salah and song is the issue of purity. It's like if someone has ejaculated and has not washed, well, they're in an impure state as well, and they can't pray. So the same apply to, to uh, menstrual bleeding. It's a, the argument is that it is an impure state, and so you the obligation to pray drops and the obligation to fast drops. Now, having said that, I always tell, and this this has been a position that now I've, I've held for a long time, you have a license not to pray and not to fast. I cannot tell you that if if you go wash and you clean yourself and you offer prayer, I cannot tell you that Allah is not going to accept. I that that's that that would be beyond what I know. There is nothing in the sources that tells me 
that Allah would be offended by a woman praying or a woman entering a mosque. It is not the case that a woman is like something dirty and untouchable. It's not the case that, well, you're on your you're on your period, so get out of my face. I don't want to see you praying. I don't, I, I don't want anything from you because you're disgusting to me. It is not the case. There are some, you know, I tell women, you have a license not to pray and a license not to fast. Some women come and say, no, it me, if I, I need to pray. I need to be with God. Uh, if you are doing it for egotistical reasons, because you want to defy men and defy patriarchy and defy misogyny, um, then that's very different. I mean, Allah knows your intention. If you're doing it for earthly reasons, if you truly need Allah, and I can't tell you, you know, can, can anyone, anyone, I defy anyone to say that a woman during her menstrual cycle, if she does dua, anyone that tells you, oh, I know Allah will not listen to her dua, who gives you that, that authority? Who gives you that power? That is way beyond. That's just such uh, conceit and arrogance and, and humility demands that you simply say, you have a license that I, not, not for, that license is not susceptible to the uh, 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 rational analysis, because a lot of ibadat are not susceptible to rational analysis. However, if you stand before Allah and offer your ibadah, because Allah knows what you, is inside of you, uh, Allah might uh, very well accept from you, and accept in ways that, uh, that are beyond what we can imagine. A woman on, on her cycle that offers her, her ibadah and her intentions are far more pure than a, a, another woman who's not on her cycle and offers her ibadah but she's not concentrating on her prayers and she offers her prayers and she's thinking of her children and what to do for dinner and uh, how the car needs fixing. and You know, so it, it is not... Um, flagellating women using this menstrual cycle as a way of um, punishing women or demeaning women or making women feel that they're deficient or defective is um, uh, the other thing that I, I mean I've noticed this especially with the youth group in the old days uh, when in the youth group among, uh, of the Islamic Center of Southern California uh, every time we would have Salat al-Jama'ah, there was a joke. I mean, we would always comment that there were certain women who seemed to always be on their period. Um, you know, they never prayed. And it was all, you know. So the, this period issue 
cuts both ways. If some women abuse it to basically skip on ibadat and always use it as an excuse, and some women are truly uh, see it as an obstacle, what my strong advice to you is don't raise this issue for egotistical purposes. Religion is too serious and ibadat are too serious an issue for you to just want to spite men or to, you know, um, uh, raise a feminist point so that you can feel cool and, you know, hip and happening and all of that. That's not acceptable. Uh, and, and, and that's really unfortunate. Okay, so... Um, Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, as a follow-up question to the inhaler issue, if inhaling gaseous substances does not break fast, why would smoking break one's fast? In other words, why do cigarettes but not inhalers break fast? Yeah. You know, that, that's... Um, that fatwa that I mentioned from Darul Iftar Masriya, you know... Uh, uh, the main reason that to make uh, the long debate in the, is that inhalers uh, includes uh, it, an accommodation for a medical need. So it's basically to enable people who have breathing problems to participate in fasting without having to suffer. There is a legal principle that demands that we, when, when the evidence points, when the evidence is of equal weight, so the evidence, the tarjih, is 50-50. Medical need can come in and tip the scales towards a rule that brings facility and ease. Smoking, the balance tips the other way. We don't want people to smoke. So we're not going to accommodate, even if the, uh, the evidence is, let's, let's assume that the evidence is 50-50, and then a smoker comes and says, I want to smoke. We'll say, well, you know, I, I'm, I can't use my tarjih to accommodate you because, in fact, there, you're not smoking to improve your health you're smoking to, for other reasons. Um, it is not that we have, you know, you could have raised the same question about the practice of tabakhur, uh, you know, that they would have bukhar, they would have um, uh, incense. And, you know, they would go over the incense with their um, uh, head covering and they would go like this, basically to get the smell of the incense all over their body. And of course, you inhale some of the smoke. And why was that deemed appropriate while smoking it, which is a more modern thing, was deemed inappropriate? Because smoking, the argument was, that from among the, the, the jurors who dealt with smoking early on, is that smoking is either haram or makruh either haram or makruh. Now, let's, so if it's haram, then you can't smoke for whether fasting or not fasting, it doesn't matter. 
if it's makruh, then it's already in a suspect category. And it becomes haram when there is evidence that would bolster the hurma. So, in, and this all has to do with usul al-fiqh. That, in other words, that why is it that ta'attur or uh, smelling incense is okay, but smoking isn't? Because ta'attur is not makruh. Smelling incense is not makruh, but smoking is makruh. And then when it comes to smoking while fasting, that makruhiya, that state of disfavor, gets tipped into the hurma level. In other words, it gets the evidence against it or weighed against it. So basically, all the objectives, when we look at why there is fasting, uh, so you can, uh, training yourself on perseverance and sabr and ibadah and uh, 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 all of these purposes are negated by the act of smoking while fasting because you are indulging and you are wasting money and you are uh, engaging in acts of akruh. Well, during fasting, every act that is makruh must be refrained from. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I knew in, uh, when, when a, long, a long time ago there was a guy I didn't like very much um, who insisted because of this Bukhur issue that smoking is halal and halal during uh, fasting. And he, he would make it a point saying, oh, I just smoke. I limit myself during fasting to three cigarettes. And I thought to myself, and I told him this, this was a long time ago in Egypt, um, you know, you're taking such a huge risk because you might, in the final day, you know, Allah might not accept your entire fasting. Um, and if I was in your place, it's not, you know, it's one thing to tell Allah, I fasted for you, but you you gave me asthma and I used the inhaler so I can breathe, so I can function in the day. It's another to say, I fasted for you, but I couldn't stop smoking for you. Um, Thank you.